0: Hi, um, this is Alice and welcome to the first real episode of Historical Friction. This was recorded a couple of weeks ago before I had my tech fully sorted out. Consequently, there's a little whistly background noise. Um, It's more obvious if you're listening with headphones, so just keep that in mind. I'm really sorry, things are improving. This episode was a conversation with the absolutely brilliant Eleanor Affleck about representing and finding queer possibility in productions of Twelfth Night. So I hope you enjoy it. Okay, well, I guess we'll just start then. Hi, um, (laughs) my name's Alice, and this is Historical Friction. We're gonna talk about the relationships between history and popular culture, and particularly the ways that we represent and connect to the past. So my guest for this episode is Eleanor Affleck. Hi. Hello. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about what you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm Eleanor. I am currently studying on the MA in Queer History at Goldsmiths. Yeah, I do LGBTQ outreach for the Museum of Youth Culture, uh, Queer History and Youth Subcultures. My academic research interests are sort of Shakespearean sexualities and I'm really interested in modern representations of early modern sexuality, um, particularly on the stage, which sort of feeds into a wider interest of public history and queer public history and how we, yeah, how we represent queer
0: histories from the past. Amazing. This episode came out of the fact that I saw you had ranted a little bit on Twitter about the um, National Theatre's NT live stream of one of their versions of Twelfth Night. And I think we ended up like messaging about it because it was just, it was, we both had very strong opinions about it. Um, We
1: did indeed.
0: (laughs) And from there we started talking about how, that adaptation, sort of what we felt were the issues with it and what was going on with it. So we're going to dive right into talking about mainly Twelfth Night, I think. We want to get into the way that some of the characters are represented and just what exactly is going on in that play.
1: Yes, yeah, definitely. I think Twelfth Night is probably a good one just in terms of like the text itself is quite rich in possibilities for Um, queer representation and also it's quite a popular play to be staged so there's lots of like there's loads of productions that you can compare and contrast and uh, have lots of very strong opinions about yeah yeah
0: so for people that don't know Twelfth Night do you want to give us a really quick summary of what happens
1: yeah so it's a comedy by William Shakespeare (laughs) centering on uh, mistaken identity so the play takes place in the Uh, mythical land of Illyria um, and it sort of opens with um, just after the shipwreck and the sort of I guess the the main character that we follow through the play is Viola um, and she is washed up in Illyria she doesn't know anyone so she decides the best course of action for her own safety is to uh, dress up uh, disguise herself as a a boy um, and go and work at the court of this count Um, Count Orsino Um, and it also transpires that Viola has a twin brother who has we think at the start of the play that her twin brother Sebastian has drowned and then at the same time on Illyria there's these two sort of figures there's the Count Orsino and the uh, Countess Olivia Um, and Orsino is wooing Olivia um, not particularly successfully (laughs) Um, no (laughs) he's doing a terrible job of it he is doing he is doing absolutely the worst job imaginable really uh he's yeah bless his heart he's not very good at it and then there's lots of sort of mistaken i don't know mismatches opportunities for misunderstanding emerge Um, hijinks hijinks lots of lots of hijinks uh everyone's falling in love with all of the people that they shouldn't be falling in love with um and all of this is sort of complicated by Viola's disguise as a boy and then of course we have Sebastian reappearing halfway through which just adds another level of confusion to everything yeah that's kind of I mean that's the sort of the where we where we start off yeah
0: we have this kind of running theme through the play of mistaken identity and people you know deliberately deceiving and playing tricks on each other and because there's this character of Viola who's disguised as a boy as um she's called Cesario is the pseudonym she gives herself it's a really rich text for getting into (laughs) ideas of gender and sexuality in particular and that's something that a lot of modern adaptations have picked up on. We've got this fantastic play that is genuinely really lovely and funny in places and kind of dark and awful in others.
1: Yeah yeah it's really interesting because I think like it's very much in a lot of ways a play about grief Um, Mm. and I think that's something that I think there's kind of there's a lightness to it but like The whole of the play kind of rests on this idea of like the conditional so it opens with if music be the food of love play on and this if phrase is kind of like something that keeps resounding through the whole play Mm. um and yeah I think it's really interesting because like there are obviously there's like a lot of fun but I think sort of underlyingly a lot of it is about how we sort of process grief and loss yeah I think that's that's something that is difficult to get right in a production, actually, to sort of balance that.
0: I mean, there is this this really interesting relationship between, like, Viola and Sebastian. Both of their characters think that the other has died, and so they spend most of the play grieving for each other, even while they're doing other things. And Viola sort of takes on the character of her brother, yeah. and, like, becomes him. But when they're reunited at the end, that's all sort of brushed away, and it's never really touched on. And yeah. obviously, it's a comedy, so there's a limit to what you can do in terms of embracing that grief. But it's a really interesting theme that doesn't tend to come up in these productions, which mostly tend to be about making fun of some of the characters and really embracing the absurdity of all this um, mistaken identity.
1: Yeah, yeah. Absurdity is definitely the right word. I think I read somewhere that it's the play where the word madness is used like the most out of all of Shakespeare's plays. Like. That's amazing. There's, yeah. That I really mean, surprises
0: me. But yeah,
1: yeah okay. And I, like, I kind of thought, I was like, surely that's like, I don't know, something like Hamlet. Mm. But no, apparently Twelfth Night or, is certainly one of the plays with the highest incidence
0: of the word. One of the things that kept coming up when we were talking about this before was one of the characters in particular, who's not one of the main characters, who's a sort of sideline figure, who's Malvolio. Um, he's yeah. Olivia's steward, and he's actually probably the character that suffers the most at the hands of other people on stage in the play
1: yeah absolutely um so yeah I guess sort of Malbully was like Olivia's second in command um and it's sort of it's clear from the outset of the play that he he holds himself in very high regard and he kind of it transpires that he has sort of affections for Olivia whether these affections are motivated by the fact that she's above him in status or whether it's sort of more of a like a I don't know, I guess a more personal crush or something mm. is kind of hard to untangle because a lot of the time he sort of describes Olivia or speaks about her is sort of in terms of this, like he sort of sees himself as becoming her husband and ruling over all of the other members of Olivia's household who he has a, a less than uh, amicable relationship with. And he, he is very much this kind of outsider. Um, and then there's this sort of quite uncomfortable portion of the play where he he sort of is punished quite dramatically for having these aspirations the ending of the play is him being cast out of the the sort of the festivities and i think the last line he has is is something like i'll be revenged on the whole pack of you his ending is very much left kind of unresolved
0: yeah he's a really tricky character to adapt because on the one hand he's a source of a lot of the comic relief in the play like he is a figure of ridicule and the other yeah. characters are constantly making fun of him, making him seem ridiculous. You know, they convince him to dress up in this hideous outfit because he <laughs> believes that it will make Olivia love him. And yeah. he just misunderstands every situation that he's placed yeah. in. But on the other hand, he's... he's essentially imprisoned and beaten for his behavior in this really awful way. Completely. I mean, that was sort of another character that people compare him quite a lot to is
1: Shylock. Um, right. And I would say yes. that he's not written, like, as sympathetically as shylock is um a lot of the sort of the first half of the play like malvolio does come across as like very pompous and you kind of the nature of his teasing isn't particularly cruel um mm-hmm. and it does sort. you're kind of a bit like oh get tell like this this guy just coming in here and trying to ruin all the fun no more cakes and ale no thank you malvolio <laughs> um i would love my cakes and ale but then yeah there is kind of like this turning point where it just his punishment becomes I don't know yeah just a lot of productions it suddenly becomes very uncomfortable to watch and it's this kind of sense of it going too far I think
0: so now we've kind of set the set the frame of the play we were going to talk about a couple of particular productions of this and how they handle the representation particularly of sexuality and gender within the play So when we were prepping for this, you sent me a fantastic playlist, and I will definitely (laughs) be putting some of the links to it in the show notes for this episode. There were three productions, or four actually, productions of Twelfth Night. There's a 1996 film version, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail (laughs) later on. There were three stage versions that you sent me. So there was a 2012 production at The Globe that's done in an incredibly traditional way. Yeah, um, a 2017 production at the Globe, which is done in a very like cool and modern and edgy way. And then there's the 2017 National Theatre version, which is the one that we both watched on the NT yes. live stream and had opinions about. Do you want to get into sort of the differences between these and what they do well and badly? I would love to
1: um do you, <laughs> do you want
0: <laughs> do you want to start in chronological
1: order Should yeah I begin let's with, start uh,
0: let's start with the globe
1: so that globe one is actually uh my favorite out of all three of the productions which I think initially would be like I don't know I feel like initially that's a bit of you wouldn't expect that because it is this very sort of traditional um sort of original practices or like yeah. not original practices but Ironically, as, as I would of, say
0: it's probably like it, they play it rev- very, very straight in that yeah. it's extremely traditional in the way that it's yeah. staged and costumed and all of that.
1: Yeah, like there's a real sincerity to it. This is, this is clearly just like created by nerds, <laughs>
0: like foreign nerds. I love like, that so much, though. I really
1: respect that approach. Yeah. No, I'm just like, honestly, props to you because I think it works really well. So the thing about the sort of original practices way Um, I don't want to say original practices because there's another phrase. Because original practices is quite misleading because it's like you wouldn't, we don't know 100% how these productions were performed back Mm. in the early modern period. Um, So to say original practices is like you're never really going to get back to that point. Um, So it is this kind of, it's not like they're, it's just, but it is kind of like using performance as research. Yeah. Would we call Um, it like
0: a reconstruction or a reenactment or something maybe? A lot of the dramaturgical decisions are based very
1: much in historical research. Uh, and that was sort of one of, the, one of the things that they've sort of felt quite strongly about at the Globe when it was established, was these, these sort of performing these productions in conditions that sort of borrow from how they would originally have been performed to give us sort of insight into the plays. But one mm-hmm. of the conditions of this is the sort of the all male cast. So every single character in that Globe production is played by uh, a male actor. And I mean, like right off the bat, obviously that's not great in terms of diversity. It's also Mm. an overwhelmingly white cast. So I think in terms of um, things that that production does not do well, I would say diversity of casting and diversity of voice, poor, (laughs) extremely poor. Extremely poor. (laughs) But I think the all gender cast, the sort of one What's the word the sort of the monogendered i don't know <laughs> yeah there's I guess... not really
0: a word for this yeah, but there's like... specifically the, the all male casting the all
1: male casting yeah um, it works really really well in terms of opening up these sort of possibilities of sort of seeing i think queerness on stage in a way that you can i don't know it just hits different it hits mm. different than it does when you're seeing a female or sort of and like a yeah a female actor playing viola there's this kind of additional level of sort of gender disruption i guess because instead of having like a sort of a a female actor playing viola disguised as a male you have a male actor playing a female character disguised as a male character so it sort of adds this this level of extra complication um yeah on top of that which i think and especially when you have it as sort of this is something that's happening with all of the female characters in the play. It does just, it's, it just is a very different viewing experience. And I think you sort of approach the production quite differently. Like it's immediately not naturalistic. And I think when you've sort of grown up in a tradition of sort of Western theater, that privileges sort of realism and naturalism mm. um, to a certain extent, um, and especially sort of growing up with films like that as well, watching a production like this, it's just a very different experience. And I think it's sort of just the audience approaches it differently. And I think as well, because the female characters all have sort of this very specific makeup and this very specific style of movement, which they borrowed from, I think it's a kabuki, um, sort of Japanese dance. Um, so the way, they, the way they move, they sort of, they, it's hard to describe, but they sort of float on the stage. Like it's all yeah. very, smoothed and quite, very smooth and quite like, choreographed. Yeah, like it is literally like he just he, or she, I guess, moves sort of or they move around the stage yeah. on on. Yeah, it is. It's like they just glide. It is like they're on wheels, and I think that sort of also points to how it's this very different language of signaling gender. I think when we're so used to sort of again as a modern audience reading it very much in the sort of this kind of essentialized view of gender that locates it very much in the sort of biological body, seeing it being represented in movement or clothing or makeup in a way that is quite in a way that divorces it from the sort of biological body of the actor or how we would read the biological body of the actor is again something that just sort of I don't know opens up this kind of the strangeness and possibility of gender in a way yeah that completely like... yeah
0: so even while you've got this this all-male cast and that might seem very very limiting in terms of the gendering of the characters it actually forces you to understand just how much of the gender of the characters and the performers on stage is part of the theater. You know, it is the performance, it is in the makeup, it is in the kind of dress and the movement. And it op- offers us this sort of, it's a, it's a moment to think about that. And, you know, hopefully for some of us that then spills out onto the way that you approach these things in real life as well. Yeah. The, the theater becomes a kind of crystallization of that kind of question. Yeah. It, It makes it all about artifice in a really beautiful and compelling way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think because they do perform it with such sincerity. And I think the thing I really Mm. like about that production is that it's like, it's very funny. It's one of the funniest versions of Twelfth Night that I've watched once you kind of get your ear in. Gender and sexuality themselves are never the butt of a joke. Like there's never, you know, it's not, it's not like... The funny bits of the play are very much sort of i don't know they come out of the script they don't sort of come out of this i don't know it's hard to describe, but I do feel like some some productions you kind of get like sort of a character's gender or a character's sexuality or the way they behave or the way they act sort of becoming a like a, a bit of a pantomime or becoming something which I think yeah. actually some of the later productions do this production it's like like people kiss each other as well, and it's mm. this kind of thing where you're like oh like this is this is both." homoerotic but also like heteroerotic and also like this I think this play also really has a very nice relationship between Viola and Olivia because I think a lot of the time Mm. like Olivia's played like this I don't know she gets I think she gets a bit of a rough deal yeah she's usually played as this kind of like silly little woman this play sort of again because it's Mark Ryland's playing her as well there's this kind of depth to her Mm. like there seems to be a sort of a sort of an understanding or a respect between her and Viola which like I read this really interesting article ages ago about these sort of lesbian possibilities in Twelfth Night that are
0: yeah like
1: and I think a lot of the time people sort of focus because of the all-male all-male casting people focus on Mm. the homo the sort of male homoerotic possibilities in these plays and sort of ignore the female homoerotic possibilities Um, But actually, sort of between Viola and Olivia, there is this sort of space to explore that as well, um, because Olivia falls in love with Viola as Cesario. Um, Mm. But again, you've got these sort of levels of gender and sort of reading the actors. And when you're sort of watching this on stage and it all sort of collapses into what you're seeing, it's like for most of the play, it's Olivia sort of attempting to woo Cesario and it's just yeah there's just like a lot of sort of lesbian possibility in there as well and I think this play sort of because it doesn't play Olivia fancying Cesario is like shallow or completely for comedy reasons like there is like a depth of feeling there it yes. allows for that possibility to be explored as well like it, it, that in itself isn't the butt of a joke like Olivia's just absolutely charming like she's so like, you just watch it and you're like, oh, you just feel for her. Because, like, who hasn't fancied somebody that they, like, shouldn't fancy? And she's kind of aware <laughs> of that. But she's also like, you know what? I'm just really into Cesario. So I'm just going to keep acting. I it. mean, that
0: in itself is a huge queer mood.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. No, completely. Like, it's, it's like the whole, like, so much of the play is just, like, queer pining. It's just like a yes. uh, love triangle of pining <laughs> like yeah
0: yeah. You know? yeah it's just everyone is yearning really yeah. hard all the time yeah,
1: completely and
0: it's a really beautiful way of tackling that script in that context so I think that brings us quite nicely on to these two 2017 productions and like, I don't know what it was about 2017 that was just a huge year for Twelfth Night. Yeah. There's one version at the Globe that's sort of set on like a cruise ship. Yes. Um, and then there's another version at the National Theatre, which is in this like weird sort of like slightly techno dystopian looking <laughs> set. Um, <laughs> I hated the set for that. Oh, I just didn't understand did it. I. it I,
1: think, I? think the thing about that is it's a massive stage. So I think the temptation is mm. always to be like, right, we need some a big architectural set piece. We've
0: just got all this space yeah. to fill, but
1: it just makes the actors look it tiny. Does. It completely does. And it's, yeah, no, I agree. I also did not enjoy the set for that at all.
0: So both of these productions do a kind of like, actually, the sort of standard modern gender casting for all of the characters except for Malvolio. Yeah.
1: So in both of these productions, Malvolio is played by a female actor. In the, I can't remember in the Globe one. Um, I think, I don't know. In a way, I kind of, if I was asked to describe what gender Malvolio was, I wouldn't be able to sort of put Malvolio firmly in either box. Mm. And it kind of, in a way, it feels kind of weird, sort of like assigning genders to actors and characters based solely on like how they're sort of performing on the stage but I guess sort of like Malvolio was sort of in the fashion of the very sort of emasculated manservant there's a kind of immaturity to Malvolio he's sort of as far as I can tell he is he is gendered as male in terms of the pronouns that he's given in the production mm. um whereas in the National Theatre one this is like the sort of the famous one where it was um Tamsin Gregg is it Tamsin Gregg or Tamsin it's Tamsin Gregg that's how you pronounce it
0: I've always said it as Tamsin. It Greek might be. And sort of it might be Disguised Greek. it with my accent, and I don't know which one it actually is. No, do
1: I? I should look. I should. I should have Tamsin. Tamsin. Yeah, or Tamsin. Maybe we should do a "You're wrong about" and just say Tamsin Grog, and it can be <laughs>
0: <laughs> just, just absolutely commit to it. I'm just going to assume we're on first name yeah. terms. Yeah. So, so Tamsin. Tamsin
1: plays Malvolia, who is who mm. is a, a lady manservant. And it's it's uh, it's made abundantly clear that, that she's a lady, she's a lady man mm. like that was a big sort of thing in all of the press at the time. Was like, oh, it's a, it's Malvolia, it's a female, but like Malvolio. Yeah, it's quite it's quite easy to sort of put a lesbian reading onto both of these characters, um, and sort of mm. read them in that context. Sort of certainly that that's what the optics of it are. Like these are these both look like quite lesbian mal- Malvolios.
0: Yeah, and in, in the Globe production um the actor has like a bad sort of bad facial hair and is sort of like coded as masculine through dress but is also like very small and very slight and in the clips that I've been able to see is like physically much more like lithe and petite than any of the other actors on yeah, stage yeah which is an interesting thing for what it says to us about coding this character either with gender or with sexuality as being sort of masculine but also effeminate yeah in that way yeah I think so definitely
1: and interestingly actually I think that actor also played Puck um in that because they were they did a Midsummer night's dream at the same time who sort of generally I don't know I think sort of has Mm. I don't know in my own head I always kind of read Puck as non-binary or sort of queer (laughs) and I think definitely the character of me sort of coming to that performance and watching Malvolio I would kind of read them as non-binary there as well um Mm. or as this kind of very feminine mask character, no. That, yeah, like they just. Yeah, sort of... I
0: mean, they sort of. Malvolio sort of becomes. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Not necessarily in the sense of being between masculine and feminine, but in the sense of being almost completely detached from those yeah. two poles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. Completely. Um, they
0: kind of sit somewhere else. Like.
1: Yeah, you can't. You can't map them onto one or the other. Exclusively.
0: Yeah and so in this case Malvolio is a kind of much more like straightforward figure of ridicule and the sort of genderlessness of the performer adds to the absurdity but it's not necessarily the focus it's much more clearly a case of like we've got this good comic actor who's capable of playing this part so we'll cast we'll cast her in this traditionally read as male role just for the fun of the production was certainly how I felt yeah, about yeah yeah
1: definitely um I feel like it's sort of and I think I feel like in that production Malvolio is like very much a sort of figure of fun there's kind mm. of not it doesn't feel like Malvolio is at any point sort of particularly threatening he's not particularly fleshed out as a, there's no sort of attempt to do like a sympathetic no. reading like he's very much like a like a type like in some and sometimes it does feel a bit like a sort of because like the performer is so physical and she's like very good at sort of the physicality of the performance i don't know they're not attempting to give malvolio a great psychological depth in the production no
0: <laughs> it also like to me i just don't find it that interesting or no. that compelling no um which is maybe like a really harsh thing to say but i just don't find that kind of casting and that interpretation of the character oh does God. much for the production it feels like a gimmick no more than anything i completely else.
1: agree like i was like oh i don't want to say this in case it sounds so mean but then i'm like oh no wait that's what i'm on this podcast to do but like, yeah. yeah yeah we're here to be mean <laughs> but like i remember <laughs> i was speaking to to my partner about this and we were both like it just comes across as like a pantomime and also weirdly yes. doesn't sit particularly well with the rest of the production because i think some aspects of that production are quite sincere and especially sort of Um, I remember quite liking Viola in that production. I think, like, she -hmm. was really good. And, like, and then, like, Malvolio just sort of bounds on with this, like, absolutely ridiculous Welsh accent. And it's just like, ha, 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 pee-pee-poo-poo, funny
0: faces. Yeah. And you're like, (laughs) okay, great. There's already a fool in this play. We don't need an extra clown. (laughs) Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah, no, completely.
1: You absolutely nailed it. Like, we really don't need... Malvolio the, the clown there could have been a lot more done with Malvolio's character and um, because Malvolio was just sort of like the ghost at the feast like Malvolio is this sort of person yeah. who come like in this sort of atmosphere of festive frivolity Malvolio is the character that continually appears and is like this will end at some point Twelfth Night yeah. can't last forever and it's interesting because mm. like at the time this play is written before Oliver Cromwell comes into power and the Puritans close down the theaters. But, like, I remember, again, like, I was speaking to my partner about this and, like, Malvolio's is the future. <laughs> like, Malvolio is where this is yeah. going to go in however many years, you know? Like, in the end, Malvolio wins. Looking at it historically, mm. um, there will be a period where... The sort of, again, the Puritans close the theatres down. There does need to be, I don't know, I like it when there is a level of mild threat. (laughs) Like some PG level threat to Malvolio. And it just falls completely flat when it's this kind of hilarious pantomime thing.
0: I feel like the National Theatre version was like the opposite of pantomime in that, from what I saw of that, the character of Marvolio just becomes completely tragic, but not in a good or engaging no. way, just in a like, <laughs> oh, this is awful kind of way. Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess like my, I also may I may I say one more issue that I have with the uh, the Globe. <laughs> oh please. So it's set in the, uh, it's it's set on a remote Scottish isle, and um, okay. and they just they haven't. It appears that they have cast nobody who's actually from Scotland, and it makes it absolutely unwatchable as a Scottish person because the accents are so upsetting. And I just, yeah, I just, okay, yeah, that's I just to get that in there. It's just extremely rude of, rude of them actually. Uh, but yeah. yeah, coming back to the, uh, the National Theatre, <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess the main premise of this was, guys, it's great we've got a lesbian. Malvolio, Malvolia, she's a lesbian, and it's like, oh yeah. wow, great! I love it. I've, I lesbians in Twelfth Night. I yeah, it's more likely exactly. than you I'm think. Like, great, maybe this is a play that's really gonna, <laughs> maybe this is a production that's really gonna just get its teeth stuck into that. Because I was like, maybe they'll do an all female, an all female cast. Phyllida Lloyd absolutely nailed it with with the trilogy yeah. of, that, that she did. I'm here absolutely. for it. And then it, it turns out that actually. It's just every single sad queer story where like the one yep. yeah, sort of, I don't know, I guess we, Vi- Viola is, is sort of quoted as quite queer as well. But I think when so much of the focus is on Malvolia and so much of the press is like, oh, guys, buckle in, it's time. And then watching the production, it's just very underwhelming. <laughs> and I think like, Malvolio is like very traditionally sort of an outsider in the play like Malvolio's whole thing is that he is never accepted
0: mm. into the society he is very much always the sort of figure of
1: I don't know like he's just he's
0: always he's always the sort of the perpetual outcast okay so now what this is making me think of is that we need someone to have the audacity to do a production where Malvolio's played in himself
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be great I think we do I think we do need a uh, an incel Malvolio Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Um yeah, his character is just so completely outside and he blames everyone else for his misery yeah. and his misfortune. It's true that people are kind of mean to him and not very welcoming, but it's also abundantly clear that he isn't trying very hard yeah, to make friends. No,
1: absolutely. Like he he really isn't putting the effort in. He is extremely patronizing to a lot to the other characters as well. Yeah. He is rude and mean and just he 's like not he's not nice, like like he's just the whole the whole of the play like he's just a bit a bit of an arsehole, and again, mm. the sort of the discomfort at his punishment comes from the fact that the punishment is so severe, you know you're kind of like yeah, and it kind of doesn't really fit into this sort of very comic play, you know, and I think you do mm. kind of feel bad for Malvolio at that point, but you don't feel sorry for Malvolio from the get go again I don't think he's written particularly sympathetically. No. You know, I think you are supposed to kind of go on this journey yeah. where you're like, ha 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 ha, get Telt Malvolio, and then you're like, oh, actually, I think this, I think this punishment is just a little bit, a little bit too much for anyone, really. It's cathartic, and into, then it tips over into obscene. Yeah, yeah the But I think when you've got this sort of very visibly queer character occupying this space, it does just sort of strengthen this, this narrative of the fact that, like, I don't know, it's just a very negative space for someone sort of visibly queer to occupy like it's quite in a way it sort of makes the narrative very homophobic it's this kind of and i think when it is a character that's so visibly queer it's just very difficult not to read that sort of poking fun at malvolia as something that does it's Mm. sort of like again it's like when you look at it like the optics of it it just seems like a very homophobic homophobic iteration of malvolio which is something that you're just like but that's that's really i mean there are a lot of plays where i think you can kind of find underlying homophobia but like it's weird that you would like add it into this character who is not particularly
0: like like
1: you don't need to put it in yeah no. like, who needs yeah. to go
0: looking for this yeah. shit why would you actively go out of your way to make your production yeah, yeah. homophobic in 2017 yeah,
1: like and there is th- why it's a choice that yeah, I really don't understand. No, I agree, and a part of me is like, did you just not who I don't know? I'm just like, I'm just like, did something just get lost along the way, or? But yeah, mm. I don't know. And there is this kind of this scene at the end where like I don't know, Malvolia climbs these big tall stairs in the rain and like does a wig reveal, and it's like, oh, what Malvolia is is liberated now, I guess because she's shown her true colors question mark but it's just such a it's just it's just i don't know it's just such a weird nothing statement
0: especially because before we get to that point of the wig reveal she's done this frankly deeply uncomfortable <laughs> striptease kind of which performance. is just like also
1: i think i think a lot of the issues as well as the fact that like the way i mean like obviously all of this is just like my opinion and my reading of these these plays and these texts you know like anybody can Read a, read a text and have an interpretation. Like, that's, like, you know... And a play is just, like, another way of reading the text. But I do feel like a lot... Like, I do feel like it's very out of character for Malvolio as Malvolio was written to do this thing. And I think it kind of creates this weird, uncomfortable gap between the sort of text Malvolio and stage Malvolio. So you're just a bit like, where has this come yeah. from? Like, where... why like Why would this Puritan character who like seems to be very concerned with sort of modesty and properness all of a sudden like jump into doing the striptease for Olivia when the only instructions given in the Mm. letter are to wear yellow stockings with cross garters part of me is like I guess maybe they wanted to like translate how ridiculous this is into a modern setting so like wearing bad trousers has to become escalated into this whole like literal song and dance but I just don't I I just just don't get it like like, also like Shakespeare plays are long Shakespeare plays are very long yes why when you're trying to cut down any kind of very long play to put on the stage do you think you know what will make this cutting process easier putting more material in yeah I didn't understand it I didn't I was like who is this for it's not It's not for the queers. <laughs> like, no.
0: Well, I mean, my, my so my engagement with this was that way back in, I guess, April, when this was streamed as a National Theatre Live thing, I watched this as a long distance date with my partner. We got about 10 minutes in and they were kind of bored and kind of confused. And I sort of worked out what was happening with this Malvolia character and the fact that like she was clearly going to be played as a sort of tragic and yet also predatory lesbian and i was like we don't need this this isn't what we want i'm not gonna watch this and so i like pulled the plug on it and i'm really glad that we didn't watch this as a date because that would have just been so unspeakably (laughs) depressing the,
1: the predatory thing is like another absolutely that's another thing that's like so frustrating about this character is because like Again, if you want to explore lesbian potential in Twelfth Night, you have Olivia and Viola right there. I think it is completely possible to do a production where they are interested in each other or have a kind of mutual understanding or a mutual respect that could potentially Mm -hmm. sort of go into something else as well. Like there's, you know, like there's kind of space for these characters to desire, you know, like obviously Viola is like so into Orsino that she doesn't want to engage with Olivia but that doesn't mean that it's not something that she can't see and it doesn't mean that it's not something that isn't presented as a possibility sort of that kind of doesn't really Mm. feel like it's given much space in this production and instead it's very much focused on sort of Malvolia's inability to read the fact that Olivia just isn't interested in her but like her sort of yeah pursuit of Olivia regardless and just this sort of like again this sort of narrative that i think like as queer folk we kind of want to move away from where like sort of in popular media mm-hmm. we are sort of represented as sort of never having desire fulfilled and sort of constantly being sort of yeah this kind of predatory presence like upsetting the balance of the heterosexual world you know
0: yeah simultaneously crying and hunting the straight girl it's really absolutely it is
1: it's just uncomfortable to watch and I just I'm like how did how did you manage to get it so (laughs) like so frustratingly wrong
0: I would say that like from my perspective a lot of the problems with this production seems to stem from the fact that you've got this sort of celebrity casting in Tamsin Grieg and that they're probably just trying to get the absolute most out of her on stage as possible But then why cast her as Malvolia? Like, why not have an older Olivia? You know, Olivia doesn't have to be girlish. She can be played in a much more sort of mature way. And there are plenty of other really interesting female roles in Shakespeare that you could give to this actor. Or frankly, there are plenty of really interesting male roles in Shakespeare that you could give to this actor without falling back on this particular kind of stereotype. Absolutely. Like,
1: and I think as well with Olivia, like in in the script... Like again, she sort of it makes sense for her to be a bit older because she's about ages with Arsino, who we know is older than Mm. Viola. Because Mm. when Cesario, Mm -hmm. Viola is like, Oh, I fancy somebody who's about your age. He's like, No, 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 that's too old. You need to fancy somebody who's like who's younger than I am. And like also like Olivia, like, she's not daft. Like, she's been running a she runs a household successfully. Like, she's well liked by her staff and everyone in the house you know she's smart she's quick mm. she's she can be funny so to play her as sort of this like yeah I think I think it would have been really interesting to have Tams and Greek as Olivia and I just I don't know like yeah. Malvolio actually there's again there's not a lot of material to work with like as a character he's not hugely no. fleshed out he's not yeah he just he do, again he doesn't have this sort of depth to him that a lot of the other characters in the play have so I think, I don't know, cynically, I think it's just a sort of a commercial move. Like, it'll sell tickets because, yeah, wow, never been done before. How exciting.
0: (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I guess this is a nice opportunity. Um, Do you want to talk about the film version, the 1996 film version? Because I feel like that is actually a very interesting example of, like, a commercially produced version of this play that also manages to be very, very queer, and fun and charming all at the same time and I don't know how much of that comes down to the fact that like it was my first introduction to the play and I'm very very fond of it but
1: yeah I remember it's been a wee while since I've watched that one but I remember like overall just enjoying Mm it like a lot and yeah it was like one of my first introductions to Twelfth Night as well I think it was one of the first like versions that I watched of it Um, and it's yeah it is just like And again, I think because, I don't know, with a film, it's sort of a very different medium to theatre. So you're sort of necessarily working to different conditions. Um, Yeah, I mean, Imogen Stubbs is just very cool and sexy. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) she's great.
0: She's great. She does a fantastic job as Viola in a hilariously bad stick on moustache which is just, it's very great and I think was probably a queer Absolutely. awakening for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> certainly for me. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's a really like, it feels like a lovingly made production. It's directed by Trevor Nunn. It's got this great cast. Yeah. It's got a really young Helena Bonham Carter yeah, as Olivia guess... doing a fantastic job of the sort of funny, weird. Yeah, I guess she not really look Like, Actually, you
1: can do a young Olivia and have her be fun and i Mm. think yeah actually olivia is like is extremely camp (laughs) it is i think it's just a very campy production actually it's just like yeah it just it just everyone is just having so much fun
0: there's a hysterical scene that i think touches on in a really nice way the kind of like lesbian potential of um olivia and violet where uh, it's essentially a tug of war between Olivia and Orsino with Cesario and oh Violet in the middle. That yeah. sequence is I'd beautiful. i about that. that. Because of the, the kind of body language between the characters is really gorgeous and like Imogen Stubbs is playing Viola in a way that's like she's very yeah. physically affectionate with yeah. both of them and she's kind of clinging to both of them and trying to kind of like strike this balance and like I've literally written in my notes that um, the tug of war scene <laughs> is biculture, culture um, <laughs> but that is really it it's done in this really like really yeah. fun and really interesting way yeah um, and I think
1: yeah actually we haven't spoken about the sort of the bisexual yeah. potential in 12th night as well of which there is so much because it is this kind of, and again, because you have these sort of different yes. layers of gender and different mm. desires circulating the stage or the screen. It is that kind of, again, you can, you can do so much with how you sort of play the different relationships between all of the characters. Um, and yeah, no, completely it is because I think in that one you kind of do read Viola as sort of, again, like that kind of physical affection between both of them. You do read Viola as this mm. sort of very like cool, sexy, bisexual who's just like bitten off more than she, mm-hmm. she or they yep. can chew. Um.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think actually that production from memory and from watching a couple of little clips of it does a really nice job of representing the kind of sexual yes. ambiguity of Orsino as well, because you have in Orsino the character of a man who has been so in love with Olivia and so kind of obsessed with Olivia, and then is suddenly presented with this young man who he starts to fall in love with, and he falls in love with Viola, Whilst she's in character as Cesario and they sort of begin this romantic connection yeah under yeah, a false absolutely. identity
1: there are some productions that kind of play it as Orsino kind of knowing that Viola is sort mm. of Cesario is a woman in disguise but I think there are other other productions like that one which do sort of have Orsino going through this kind of process of realising that actually, yeah, sexuality, sexuality is and, an unfixed experience. And, and, <laughs> the, and also that sort of like desire isn't necessarily ro- located in one gendered body. Like desire can move across and through and yes. uh, th- around these things in strange and unusual ways, like, or ways that he sort of hadn't anticipated. Um, and I think as well, like, I don't know, a sort of a point of like, Something that I always really liked about Twelfth Night was that it did feel sort of like as somebody who identifies as non-binary in sort of changing mm-hmm. and exciting ways. Twelfth Night and just sort of mm-hmm. the character of Viola, Cesario, is just also sort of a real point of like, I don't know, I just really, really always felt very, very drawn to Viola because, or Cesario because of that as well. And this sort of idea of them being desirable as male or as female and as sort of and again this sort of like this contingency of gender this it's sort of not like Mm -hmm. Viola spends most of the play at Cesario so like you know I always think it's interesting like Mm -hmm. do do I call her Viola do I call her Cesario do I call and when you know when you're writing an essay on Twelfth Night you're like well you know do I use he pronouns when Cesario is Cesario do I use she pronouns when viola is viola do I use they pronouns and call them viola cesario you know there's so many iterations Mm. of sort of gender possibility in that play as well just in terms of like the character and then when you've got that on top of these sort of you know different um as you know sort of like being played by a male actor being played by a female actor being played by you know hopefully I'm sure at some point sort of a non-binary actor um that would be really nice (laughs) that would (laughs) that that would be great I think I think people should sort of lean more into exploring the sort of non-binary aspect of Viola. Um, I think it is mm. something that sort of visibly Viola is, does, is sort of becoming more and more coded as non-binary. Like I've seen quite a lot of productions use binders and that mm. kind of thing, which is cool. But I think like there needs mm. to be a more like yeah open discussion of this. And also sort of this idea of like transness in Shakespeare as well, like sort of viewing Viola as a, as a trans mm. but then I think that's like the sort mm. of the fact that at the end Viola sort of has to return to this like female gendered body you know that is yeah I think that's quite problematic for that yeah
0: there's a there's a real danger that you end up playing with the idea of Viola as like trying on androgyny or sort of trying on a kind of trans identity and that at the end of the day, you know, everything's fine. She grows her hair out and she puts on a dress. And it's like far yeah. too easy to fall into that narrative when you have this very rich and very engaging text where there's so much space to play with her gender to have this kind of concluding scene where it's like, no, it's fine. Everyone's yeah, like, back oh, in their cycle go. Locations.
1: It's Shakespeare's happy heterosexuals and Shakespeare's happy cis people back, you know, <laughs> which is why I think... Yeah. I, exactly. one of the things that I really like about the all-male casting is that like ultimately the gender of Viola on the stage is never like t- mm. to put in air quotes like resolved with the gender of Viola's sort of the yes. the actor's body playing Viola like there's always at least sort of these two levels of sort of gender that as an audience member you're sort of watching but yeah I think that's the mm. thing though I think like ultimately these plays exist or sort of were written at a time where the sort of understandings of sex and gender were so completely different to how we imagine it now but not necessarily in ways that are like cele- celebratory mm-hmm. or good like there's for as much homoerotic potential as there is yeah. there's also a lot of homophobic potential for as much like hetero like yeah for sort of as much gender ambiguity there's also sort of quite a lot of again like a lot of these plays do contain this sort of violent potential as well and I think and I think Mm. the problems that emerge with the National Theatre's production is that they kind of they do exploit this sort of or like even create this kind of violent potential in the production.
0: Yeah there was something actually when I said I was recording this episode with you a friend of mine sent me um, a recommendation, which was a paper by Sawyer K Kemp, who is a trans writer on queerness and Shakespeare, that had this really beautiful line in it that 's all about how, in all of these productions, it does ultimately come back to like the way that we understand the gender of these characters is filtered through the gender of the performer and the role of costume in that, and there was this gorgeous line in it, which was that um, in Shakespeare the magical transvestism of the pants is instant and absolute and this idea that like as soon as a character is wearing trousers they are male um and that's something we see in Twelfth Night where like Viola becomes a man and that's sort of like an instant and immediate thing it's something that comes across in a lot of other Shakespearean productions as well where you have people meeting their lovers in disguise and sort of dealing with that strangeness and I don't know, it would be nice to talk a little bit more about how other productions and other scripts have potential for this kind of thing as well or yeah. where we can find I that I mean, I guess sort of immediately the other
1: sort of famous like cross-dressing comedy is um, As You Like It, which is interesting actually because yes. I think when you compare Rosalind to Viola, Viola Cesario is quite insecure in their disguise. Um, mm. That's certainly one way to read them. Uh, like they're sort of Mm -hmm. constantly in a state of panic Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and uh, (laughs) and at one point I think actually they refer to themselves as a monster when they're in disguise as Cesario which is again this kind of this potential sort of this violent potential that exists in the play is this sort of like they they, there's a sort of a degree of unhappiness that arises because of this situation that they're in whereas I think Rosalind Mm -hmm. is much more I don't know. I I would always describe sort of Rosalind as a power bottom. <laughs> it's like, you know, what I'm not here to mess around. Like I will get what I want. And um yeah, like Rosalind <laughs> like I think there's a degree of play <laughs> to Rosalind and I think like Rosalind as Ganymede takes a much more active role in wooing and in sort of being desired. Yeah, takes Orlando through this sort of yes, this Process of learning how to how to be in love, as Ganymede, before then sort of being like yeah. actually, it was
0: me all along.
1: Ha ha ha
0: ha. It was me all but, along. Um,
1: and there's also I think there's a <laughs> moment where we have Rosalind in disguise as Ganymede, then playing Rosalind. So instead of like you know these yes. kind of so there would be again sort of originally traditionally probably a male actor playing a female character playing a male character playing a female character so again there's these sort of like additional like layers and layers and layers of this like sort of complication Mm. (laughs) of sort of gender and desire and I think just again sort of rendering it all quite unfixed and just pointing to this kind of yeah this fluidity of gender and desire and sort of how yeah Um, And I think, again, sort of Rosalind's quite conscious decision to, like, occupy this role and enjoy it. Um, But again, even at the end of that play, sort of Mm -hmm. Rosalind does return to this sort of um, female body. But I think there's sort of throughout the play, this kind of representation of somebody who's like very much enjoying their gender dissidence. It's just like it kind of feels like a moment of sort of queer joy
0: yeah it's 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 fun and it's kind of light and it's done in a playful way it can be done in a really playful way where it's like you know what this is a character that Rosalind is trying on at the moment and she's going to experiment with it and see how it feels for her yeah but she's gonna have fun while she does it whereas with Viola the narrative is always very much that yeah. it's like something out of necessity to protect herself it's like the force ma- forced masking <laughs> character yeah
1: yeah and she's just again she's just constantly stressed like hiding this sort of secret part of herself um as well it's and it's very isolating you know she's kind of very alone in this whereas like Mm -hmm. Rosalind again it just seems like is is just has fun with it in a way that Viola just is not allowed to do
0: maybe this is why I had so <laughs> much sympathy for Viola she's like this incredibly anxious disaster bisexual just having a really hard yeah. time <laughs> and she just needs someone she just needs to lie down and like oh be goodness. looked after for no, a minute. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah I don't know my overwhelming feeling kind of going into this conversation and my st- strong sort of strong feeling still is that like Shakespeare and the sort of text of Shakespeare as we sort of see it and understand it today as a kind of canon of work, Forget the Individual, is an enormously rich source of queer material. Shakespeare is unbelievably gay and like often very horny and very funny about sexuality. And there's a lot of room and creativity within that my experience of adaptations of that and productions of that is that often it tries too hard and yeah, loses the absolutely. queerness. If no, that I makes think, any sense. I think sense. it
1: does. I think I always, like with Shakespeare, I always kind of say there's like, so much of the text contains queer potential. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, arguably any play that's written to be form- performed by any kind of, if you have any performance of a play that has any kind of Mm cross-gendered casting or an all-male cast or an all-female cast or sort of non-binary or trans actors involved, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's a level of sort of queerness in terms of, like, the actual production conditions of the play before you even sort of get to the actual text. And then when you come to the texts themselves, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's been, you know, so much uh, written about, you know, like, it's impossible to have an original thought about queer Shakespeare at this point. (laughs) <laughs> but, yes. Um it is Yeah, it's just yeah. not even worth uh, trying. <laughs> no, like I mean, yeah, I think there that you know, there's always always new stuff to be sort of unlocked there. But yeah, like it's it's certainly not mm, an under researched area. I don't know. I just think there is this kind of sense that productions and sort of certainly the productions that we speak about do lose their way and it sort of ends up feeling like gimmicky or pantomime me and I think partly maybe it's sort of out of fear like I think there's a kind of a real Mm. fear of playing these characters sincerely Um, and I think there's a sort of a a fear of not playing queerness for laughs Um, you know like I think one of my issues with the 2017-2016 globe one is that Sir Andrew Mm. Aguecheek in that one as well, he is sort of played as this sort of very effeminate, mincing, I guess, like, sort of pansy, you know, like, sort of quite derogatory, Mm. like, 1950s stereotype. And it's just like, really? Like, you didn't want to make him Mm. funny for another reason that wasn't to do with the fact that he... Yeah. presents in this way like it was just very like oh again it's like not the 1970s anymore like that was, it was just it was so jarring I don't know I don't know who they think their audience are as well I always find that quite confusing because it's like if you're playing mm. up all of this sort of queer stuff in your marketing I would kind of assume that you're hoping to market it to a queer audience but also when you watch these plays it kind of feels like they're made for straight people
0: because that's who the audience yeah. of so many of these productions is in the end it's like you can do something fun and exciting but ultimately like who's going to come and see a play at the national theater or at the globe like yeah. these are expensive tickets with often quite conservative yeah. membership yeah. and i think
1: it's much less risky in a way to sort of like play these things off as laps mm. or sort of lower the stakes a little bit Um, Or I don't know. I don't know. Again, I just am completely baffled by what they were trying to do with Malvolia because it was like, well, there the stakes are quite high, but they also just don't make any, any sense. And I think there is also like a real drive to be like celebratory, to be like, we're here, we're queer, pride happened, everyone's liberated now. And the thing is like that's <laughs> it's so jarring within these texts because again I think these texts sort of like don't they don't sit somewhere like again they have all of this queer potential, but they don't they're they're not written yeah. in a twentieth century context. They're not written to like discuss these issues in the terms that we would be discussing them. They're like unusual, unstrange and they present possibilities and they you know they have yeah. all of this very rich material, but I think you kind of have to consider them in this kind of the sort of this context for like violent potential to be done towards queer people as well. It's not. It's not like. It's not yeah. like you're going to get a straightforward celebratory narrative out of any of these plays because, like, ultimately, yeah. they were kind of emerging out of a system that did, to an extent, privilege patriarchy homonormativity and cisnormativity although using those words is quite anachronistic they're not written by gay sweatshop you know they're like you know 400 year olds like very again very interesting very wonky very fun and exciting in a lot of ways but I think to not pay attention to the difficulties that are raised within these texts and the, the sort of oppressive possibility that exists within them as well that yeah that's that's what Absolutely. I guess what I'm getting at is that like they contain as much yeah. oppressive possibility as they do sort of queer possibility and to ignore that and to not be sensitive to that just kind of mm. can be very very jarring when you're watching it in performance
0: it's it's just another level of that sort of like love is love type approach to these things where it's like just because you say that you're doing something that's queer inclusive yeah doesn't actually mean that it is and just because you've maybe lightly fucked with the gender of some of the actors and characters in your production doesn't mean it's actually a creative or positive or worthwhile effort and it certainly doesn't no. make it trans representation or queer representation or anything like that and I feel like this is so often yeah it's very tokenistic <laughs> yeah. it's very surface level to me, it feels like the latest version of the kind of, like, colorblind casting hoo-ha that happened, yeah. you know, a couple of decades ago now. Yeah.
1: No, completely. And I think, again, actually, like, there are, I don't want to say, like, they are the same, because they're not, but, like, the parallels of colorblind casting as well, in terms of, like, seeing a production and being like, but what actually mm-hmm. are the optics of this? Like, there's just, like, this, this real, yeah. it's, it's so surface level, but, like, Shakespeare and colorblind casting, like, I went to see a production at the, um, it was a national theater one i think it was the most recent um, measure for measure and like one the car- luciano mm-hmm. i think it was luciano it was one of the sort of um, essentially i think the character's like uh, a pimp um and he was played by a black actor um and at one point they sort of like brought right. him on stage and they they like had chained him up um and like you're watching oh. this like this is like it was like 2019 let's not have yeah, like no. a bl- and also the f- i'm like if you're gonna put a black character on stage in chains then you had better be like really investigating that in your production like if that's something you're gonna run with like you really need to like yeah. give that the weight that it requires and like they just presented that image on the stage and then like that was there was no further like interrogation of that like the next scene was like you know like so much of it was played for laughs and you're like Theatre is a visual medium. <laughs> like, that is an image that we yeah. are seeing. Yeah. We're just not unpacking or exploring or like giving any kind of meaningful time within the context of the production. And I think like it's the same thing with with these plays, not pulling out a bit and being like, Yeah, but what does this actually like look like and feel yeah. like on stage? Like why are we just representing queer trauma in the form of malvolia on stage for people's entertainment without really sort mm. of I don't know what feels like meaningfully investigating this beyond being like, isn't it great? No one's ever done this before. And it's like, maybe there's a reason why nobody's done that before. Like, have you ever considered? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, you can't just put this on stage and then like not give us any invitation with what to do with it. Like, just be like, oh... Isn't this isn't this interesting? Yeah, and I'm like, why is it? like No, it's not actually.
0: Like, better choices could have been made. Yeah, which I feel like kind of sums theme. up everything that we've said so far. It's that like you could have done a much better job of this. You could have made this so beautiful and so interesting, and instead yeah. you just kind of like. And I mean, like, I commend the these minute. these
1: awful productions because I think they encourage people to really think critically about how we're being presented with these narratives. Do I commend? Actually, no. I don't commend them at all. I'm like, you know what? Like, we deserve better than this, and we can ask for mm. better than this. And I think as well, like, these are all sort of in the context yeah. of like large commercial theater companies. Much more interesting and exciting work is being done, sort of in fringe theater when it comes to exploring queer history on stage, that mm-hmm. that isn't within the constraints of sort of having to be commercially successful, um, and having to sort of meet the expectations of a demographic that isn't I don't know yeah like that isn't a queer audience so yeah but I think I think it's really important to like be critical of these productions and what they're showing and how they're presenting it and sort of what this means for how we can see queer history and how we see sort of the possibility of queer Shakespeare as well
0: yeah absolutely and I think yeah that idea of like there's just so much that you could do and it could be better. And that's a reason to be, I don't know, not necessarily optimistic, yeah. but driven um, and critical and demanding and to be a caring audience. And yeah, that there's, there's more and it could be better. And we have yeah, every right to absolutely. ask for better. And every right to make better, yeah. you know, just. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like that's quite a nice optimistic place yeah. to yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. Have you got anything else um, that you want to throw in while we're here, or I don't, any other like recommendations, oh, particularly good productions um, to look out for? Controversially, or... I
1: do absolutely love the uh, Julius Caesar that I sent you—the like the 1950s black and white one with Marlon Brando as um, Yes, uh-huh. Uh It's directed by the same guy who directed Guys and uh-huh. Dolls. Uh, already, huge, huge <gasps> camp value <Okay>. there. Um, <laughs> it just—it I I love Fantastic media about just guys being dudes and I think that's like the absolute peak Shakespeare guys being dudes Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of like real (laughs) like affection and love between Brutus and Cassius which I think you can read into in many fun and varied ways to the soundtrack of Beauty and the Beast
0: uh yes so uh on the note of this production it's the 1953 film version um Eleanor, in the playlist of things to watch in order to record this episode included a fan video edit of Brutus and Cassius um being cute and romantic set to something there from Disney's Beauty and the Beast which was honestly the weirdest <laughs> and most delightful 2 minutes of my life <laughs> It is a truly joyous experience and I would highly recommend it Thank to everyone you. I will it definitely really, be putting the it's link It's an, to an the iconic notes.
1: piece of media so I I <laughs> I really like that production um yeah. it's just it's just great and also like interesting because john gilgood is um plays cassius um and gilgood was sort of um famous for being arrested for importuning in a chelsea lavatory and i think 19 very close to when this film came out Mm -hmm. um and i think there's sort of a lot of interesting stuff to be said about sort of reading queerness into characters through the body of the actor um and through sort of celebrity
0: yeah
1: which is yeah i think is really interesting um uh-huh. I also really like Derek Jarman's Edward II, which isn't isn't Shakespeare, but um it's a really a really good no, way of but still sort of Jarman taking this early modern piece of material. Um and he just does some really interesting things mm-hmm. to it that sort of bring it into into conversation with the 20th century, and also he he changes the ending quite considerably, uh, in a way that sort of speaks to these sort of different possibilities of um I don't know, it's just a very interesting and queer, queer production in terms of like the way Jarman deals with time and history. So I really, I like that one as well. But that's a film.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for all of your opinions and these amazing recommendations as well. I really, really appreciate it. The end of our conversation got cut off, but all you're missing is the fact that you can find Eleanor on Twitter at L Affleck and there's a link in the show notes. You can also find me on Twitter as AA a. proctor or the show as History Friction. The show's also on Patreon if you want to support us and help us gradually improve our technical issues. And there are also a couple of links down there for the videos that we talked about, including the hysterical Beauty and the Beast fan video for Julius Caesar. Thank you for listening. Next Monday's episode is about desperate romantics and representing Victorian celebrity with Helen Victoria Murray. So I will see you then. Bye.